This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our colloquium from Molecules to Societies. I think by this point, we are at past the molecules and on to the societies. Um, originally, I was asked to speak on coalitionary aggression in general, and it was such a huge and sensitive topic that I just couldn't manage that. So I've narrowed my presentation to the impact of social ties on coalitionary aggression, which I think is the biggest difference between us and our primate relatives. Okay, the first slide here that I'm showing, it shows the two-edged sword of social ties. On the one hand, binding large coalitions, but on the other hand, reaching out across boundaries. So I'm going to begin with a comparison of intergroup relations between humans and our closest primate relatives, um, from whom we took very different paths about six, six to eight million years ago. So you can see here the different paths of bonobos, chimps, and humans. Bonobos for intergroup relations within groups and between groups, they're known to be the make love, not war primates. You have strong intergroup female alliances. And when groups meet, it's being shown that now there's more and more evidence that females can mingle between groups, but males remain tense, but they're not aggressive. Then if you move on to chimps, you have very strong intergroup male alliances and lethal coalitionary intergroup aggression at the borders of territories. And then when you get to humans, it's kind of a mix between the two. On the one hand, you have intergroup affiliation, peacemaking, cooperation, as these two men from Enga and Papua New Guinea are making peace. You also have frequent intergroup coalitionary aggression. So this is these are sort of the major differences in intergroup ties. One of the major differences between humans and, and our other primate relatives is the scale of human intergroup aggression. You have small ritualized wars, somewhat similar to um, chimps patrolling boundaries, to devastating wars with 75 million deaths, like World War II. Human coalitionary aggression is the product of a number of tendencies. One of them is phylogenetically based social behavior. Then language, which is great for insulting people and other such things. And then you have cumulative culture. So you have advanced weaponry and technology. You have arts and symbolism, which allow boundaries to be formed. These men, these Yali men are patrolling their boundaries with their penis gourds. And then you have institutions, social, religious, and political, which organize people for war. So what is really distinctive in humans uh, is uh, the presence of social ties, which creates very different behaviors. You have lifelong maintenance of mutually supportive blood ties by both males and females, so that when they disperse for mating, they maintain relations with their natal groups and can move back and forth. You have what's been called the release from proximity, and people maintain supportive ties 
in the absence of sharing residence with people in other places. These are almost like virtual communities. And then you have strong selection pressures to attract cooperators in other groups and a major concern with reputation. So the social ties in humans between groups, they provide alternate residences so that if people are short of resources in one area, they can move to another area to get um, help. You have frequent visiting and by local residents, which means sometimes they live with the wife's kin and sometimes with the husband's kin. So what's the scaffolding for these human intergroup ties, which make them so different than our other primate relatives? I, my first candidate for this, and of course we don't know, is cooperative breeding. Cooperative breeding is a reproductive system where groups members other than biological kin help in raising the young. As you can see, these little girls are helping with their siblings. We have a very slow life history and a long childhood in which bonds are formed, long-term bonds of caring with many community members, old and young, and you have continuation of these bonds after dispersal for mating and marriage. And this really pre-adapts for social ties and cooperation. And then here, the one of the better known books on this is Sarah Hurdy's Mothers and Others. And I have some other references down below. The second scaffolding, which really makes a difference between humans and our closest primate relatives, is pair bonding. We have long-term bond between a male and a female that leads to reproduction. As Bernard Chappé has argued, I think very convincingly, then paternity is recognized through proximity of father to mother. And then when people recognize mother and father's kin, you double your kinship universe and those which, with whom you have ties. And then maternal and paternal kin have an interest in investing in the offspring reduces male competition and it flattens the hierarchy because males are no longer competing for multiple females. So I'll give an example uh, from my own work. I work with the Junglasi or Kong Bushmen of Namibia and Botswana, and the Junglasi Bushmen have networks for minimizing risk. It's called HARO, and this is a gift exchange underwritten by a relationship of mutual support in times of need. So people send gifts to others and it's they say, I hold you in my heart, um, you hold yours, me in yours, and we will help each other when we are in dire need or just also just for pleasurable visiting. Each person has 70 to 20 partnerships per person between two kilometers and 200 kilometers away and they give access to alternate residences in a highly variable environment. And 4.3 months a year are spent visiting partners. This beautiful woman on the left, Shukonga, is um, decked out in all of her Harrow gifts to show and display all of her social connection because she's trying to marry off her grandson. And on the right, the map shows all of her ties. These are where all her Harrow partners are. The ones on the far right at Sahitwa are 200 kilometers away. So that just gives you one ex possible example of such intergroup ties and systems. Okay, so when do we get the first evidence 
of intergroup interaction and tolerance. How do we know? We can tell by the movement of goods found on archaeological sites. We can often trace their origin and then see where they ended up and then get a sense of how far they moved. We can use beads. We can use lithics. We can use ochre and teeth and bones. So there's good evidence for cultural diffusion, which means interaction between groups, 350 to 400 Ka ago, regular douche of fire and the Lavalois tool technology. And then you have archaeological sites that begin to show, like Ologasali, which begin to show long-distance obsidian and ochre transport, 25 to 50 kilometers. In Pinnacle Point in South Africa, 160,000 years ago, you have heat-treated silk creek, which is probably a culturally transmitted technique. Bloombo's Cave in South Africa, 73,000 years ago, you have beads, shell beads, and um, engraved items. And then anywhere between 40 or 50,000 years ago, as in Mumbai, Kenya, you have ostrich eggshell beads, which really take a lot of crafting. So now that we've gotten that background, what is the impact of social ties on coalitionary aggression? Um, the assumption is that all primates, my assumption is that all primates have the potential for aggression and affiliation. And humans both are structured by cultural lenses and cultural institutions. There's no drive for aggression or such things. So the one thing social ties can do is they can act as deterrence. You have Richard Wrangham's imbalance of power hypothesis formulated from chimpanzees, where male chimpanzees in coalitions kill neighboring group members along the borders under large power asymmetries when one group feels much more powerful than the other. Um, and this expands probably access to resources and mates. But for humans, this has drawbacks because of the social ties. If you're dependent on your neighbors for alternate residence, for help, for mates and everything, it's not necessarily a good idea to kill them or deplete their resources. And many times in humans, it's labor rather than resources that may be short. So you don't want to displace um, your neighbors necessarily to get their land. And then you have often in the literature marriage by capture, capture of women. Well, the drawbacks for humans are that you end up with mates without supportive in-laws, no grandmothers, aunts, so on from the maternal side. So you have a trade-off between maybe capturing a woman, getting more mating opportunity, but fewer to invest in the child's survival. So in this way, social ties deter um, coalitional aggression. Social ties can also act as a deterrent via revenge. The most frequent trigger for coalitionary aggression in small-scale societies is to take revenge. Why? I think because the, part, the threat of payback is a way of partially defending territories and resources that cannot be secured at boundaries. That is, people cannot ground their boundaries all the time to see if anyone is infringing. So if somehow, if there's insult or injury or intrusion, the idea that 
that group will take revenge is a deterrent. Revenge is a very strong sentiment. It, it, it exists right up from the origin of humans until today. But in many societies, it's ritualized to minimize the destruction of social ties. So if two people need to take revenge or have an offense, everybody else in the group doesn't want to have their social ties disrupted. So you have a lot of ritualized aggression. You have club and axe fights among the Yanomami. In the Inuit, you have song duels, even over murders. Who can um, concoct the most clever song can win? And disputes are solved in that way. And you have spear duels among the Australian aboriginals. But here comes the downside. <laughs> um, so intergroup social ties can definitely reduce um, coalitionary aggression. However, the intergroup social ties also leads to the formation of larger social units and the great escalation of war. So larger political units form with intense ties into tribes or communities out of networks, and they form supportive coalitions with shared identities and cultural traditions. Usually they have a shared fictive ancestor and an origin myth, and they have kind of a pyramid structure like the one on the left. You have the nesting of smaller segments within larger ones, almost a, with, like those Russian dolls. You have intergroup aggression escalating with genealogical distance. And sometimes an entire segmentary lineage, as the one shown here, may unite against a common enemy. Just to give you an example of this, you know, the communities or tribes that form out of the networks. Um, on the left is a, is a map of reconstructed tribal group in Australia prior um, to contact with Europeans. Each group had 500 to 2,000 members. And then on the right is California, where over 90 different languages were spoken by groups from 500, again, to 2,000 members. But these groups did not have fixed boundaries. They had very fluid boundaries. They kind of defined who cooperated with whom. They cooperated. They had cooperation and conflict. And the best evidence for the openness of boundaries is multilingualism. To our shame, many people in the world can speak three to five languages, the languages of their neighbors, in the interest of interaction. Um, so boundaries were by no means closed. Okay, so now I'm just going to go in quickly to social cultural engineering to bind groups. There are many forms known in the world. You have initiations and male associations. These are initiates where I work in Papua New Guinea. They bind cohorts of men for life. They draw on psychological dispositions of men to compete within the group, but when there's a threat to the group, to collaborate. And in these, these um, institutions, elders shape and discipline youths for war and peace. And there's evidence that this is really old, as many people think that the, the ancient cave art marked initiation sites. And there are some women's coalitions to keep men in line in Nigeria, but they're very rare in human societies. Most are between men. 
And then um, with this coalitionary violence in these larger social groups, you have to hold the group together. So you have a focus on honor, reputation, and sacrosanct values. And this is a quote I, from one of my Inga colleagues, old man. He said, when a man was killed, the clan of the killers sang songs of bravery and victory. Then their land would be like a high mountain. And that is how it was down to the generations. The members of the deceased clan would become small. They would be nothing. But when they had avenged the death of their clansmen, then they would be fine. Reputation was a big deal. It, it tracks investment from surrounding groups and it it shared values and binds groups together. And on the left is a pictures of Enga warriors hanging it up, hamming it up for me. And on the right, an Enga political rally. Then another, you know, really big dilemma in humans is if you're going to fight, and usually you have to fight with neighbors because you can't travel so far, you have to morally disengage from your social ties. And this is done on very common, almost universal ceremonies to dehumanize the enemy. And the taunts and the dehumanization transforms emotion of friendship to lethal animosity within a matter of hours. I documented a full war in anger. And at the war rally, this is one of, they sang songs all night, but they sang, your girls are not like our girls. Their skins are like crocodile skins and have pandanus thorns embedded in them. Our boys are afraid to touch the, their skins. You descendants of snakes, you can pay bride wealth to your own girls and marry all of them. These people had been going to school and church together a few days before. Somebody was killed. There was a dehumanization and people started to kill each other. Of course, Rwanda is famous for this, um, the dehumanization of Tutsis by the Hutu as cockroaches and snakes to be exterminated. And then another very common thing that happens when you have larger coalitions is you have to keep hold those groups together. And there's a lot of conflict and competition within groups. So war is often declared against a common enemy, something, something we know in this country too, to unite um, the group. In the Dani warfare, West Papua, they had tribal alliances. And when, it, these es when conflict escalated within them, ceremonial wars were called on against another alliance to unite people. Another common thing is headhunting. This in the Philippines, it can be targeted against enemies or random unknown individuals far down rivers. So a group of men may go down 100 miles and find an old lady and a kid in a, in a field, um, kill them and bring back their head, feel like heroes. And headhunting is done for revenge, capture of spirits, demonstration of manhood, uniting raiding parties, and it generates unifying celebrations and feasting. So those are all ways in which social ties, which bind groups, lead to escalation of war. The upside of intergroup ties is that they also facilitate peacemaking, um, something you don't have very much between groups, at all between groups in our closest primate relatives. This is, um, on the left, is a display at a Yadamabi feast to turn enemies to allies. 
peacemaking really limits coalitionary aggression at times. Alliances change very radically with peacemaking. Below is a peacemaking ceremony of the Andaman Islands where they cry together and feast. And in anger, these people I studied who um, had had these dehumanization sessions during their compensation peacemaking ceremonies, they exchange food and rehumanize the enemy. So I'm going to end up with an anecdote by one of my favorite old men in Enga, Papua New Guinea, Ambon Mati, who's a renowned peacemaker. I went to him um, once in the, during the second Iraq war where there was a lot of shock and awe going on. And it, also in Enga, high-powered weapons were just starting to replace bow arrow in warfare. And war was raging and and churches, schools, clinics, everything were being burned to ash. And I said to him, Ambon, this is just so terrible. People are going crazy here. What's going on? And he said, oh, it's terrible, and it's much harder to make peace these days. He said, but I have um, a son down in town who I occasionally visit. He has a television. And one night I watched television, and then he looked at me, and he said, Obviously, it's seen Iraq on the news. Seems like you have a war going on, too. So um, this is really the unique human proclivity to form social ties between groups, um, carries into group coalitionary ground and cooperation, both to new levels in human societies, regardless of the degree of industrialization or complexity. So I'd like to thank my team members who are all Enga in Papua New Guinea, who are just wonderful workers, and the many, many Enga magistrates, elders, even Rambos and warriors who helped us. And I'd also like to thank the provincial government of Enga province. So thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.